This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm blonde, I'm a woman, and I just encountered a lot of badness. You know, like it is very hard to be a petite, young looking woman in a senior role, as in a lot of the times people would just reject that I should even be there. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. This week's episode features a woman who never dreamt she'd end up working in a high-tech environment. In fact, Ellen Broad imagined she'd be a lawyer or a librarian when she was younger. Exactly. However, this tech exec and academic is now a senior fellow at the 3A Institute at the Australian National University. Now, the Institute's a multidisciplinary institute created to help humans prepare for and navigate a world that will be forever altered by AI-powered cyber-physical systems. Gosh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, get that. Mind you, it's reassuring to think that we've got some brilliant minds thinking about these issues. Yeah, it certainly is. Now, a little more about Ellen. She trained as a lawyer, more about that in our conversation, and she's worked in data-related roles in The Hague and in the UK, including being an expert advisor to the UK Secretary of State on Data and Head of Policy for the UK's Open Data Institute. She's also written an award-winning book on AI and its impact on humans called Made by Humans. Ellen's certainly been immersed in the worlds of big data and AI. And it's so interesting because it's not as if she has a tech or coding background. Exactly. Now, in this episode, you'll learn how Ellen navigated moving countries and finding work without having any network in her new home base, how she's found her voice to speak up against gender bias, what it's like working in a truly diverse team, why she's using social media a lot less these days, and where she thinks technology will go in the next five years. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the unassuming and very smart Ellen Broad. Ellen Broad, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you for having me. 
Well, we're super excited to have you on the show and delve into your career and your experience in artificial intelligence. And I've just sort of thrown it out there now because what we usually do is we usually ask people to briefly summarize what they do today as if they were at a dinner party. So what would you say to somebody if you were at a dinner party and you had to summarize what you do today? It's funny. I actually sometimes dread this question at dinner parties because I feel as though I change my answer frequently. But at the moment, I'd say the easiest way to communicate it is that I work on artificial intelligence, governance and ethics, kind of thinking about what it would mean to design AI more responsibly, safely and sustainably into the future. Wow. I imagine you could have some really big, deep, meaningful conversations at dinner parties. Yes. And that's partly why I end up changing my answer to the question, because even within that topic, kind of artificial intelligence, governance, ethics, on any given day of the week, what I'm actually doing could look quite different. It might be exploring general systems theory as a theory to help us understand the design of technical systems. Or I could be adapting a 100-year-old play about robots. Or I could be looking at recent data-related legislation. So it's quite hard to package it up in a way that is instantly recognisable to people. Yeah, for sure. We're going to delve deeper into the work that you do in that space in a moment. But before we do, we like to start off by understanding your childhood and what your childhood was like. And I believe you grew up in Perth, is that right? I did. I grew up in Perth, Western Australia. So I'm one of four, two brothers and a sister, and had a very, what I would call, just happy, normal Australian childhood. My mother is quite a devout Catholic. We were very interested in sports. So childhood was mainly playing a lot of sport, church on the weekends, Catholic school education, just a very stable home environment that I particularly recognise now as an adult, just how kind of valuable that was. Sounds what we all need, that stability. What was the young Ellen like? Apparently I was very naughty and mischievous. And in fact, I remember my mum telling me that when I started school, they were going to keep me down after my first year of schooling because I just didn't do any of the things a child of that age is supposed to be able to do. I couldn't recognise colours. I couldn't spell my own name. I remember being very naughty and quite cunning in the kind of activities I got other students to participate in. I remember setting up rackets in very early kind of schooling where I would get children to pay me to teach them to fly. But I remember getting in a lot of trouble. My mother at that time when they said, oh, we should keep her down, actually said, no, I think she'll settle in because mum was a pre-primary school teacher. And I kind of by about year two, year three had become, you know, the nerd of the class, (laughs) really loved learning, was kind of the complete opposite. So I think she recognised that I just had a lot of restless energy perhaps, that I perhaps was bored in early schooling. I don't know. And apart from that early entrepreneurial flair in um, flight school lessons, (laughs) (laughs) what did you imagine you would do as an adult when you were a little bit older? 
So I feel as though up until starting high school, I really thought I would be a writer or a playwright. But when I hit high school, I really, I think as probably a lot of girls do, suffered a huge confidence drop and abandoned the idea of really anything that would be about having my own talent. I became very, uh, I guess, convinced that I wasn't special and that I, you know, just needed to focus on doing the best that I could. My ideas of what I would do when I grew up became much more pragmatic. I remember at one point I wanted to be a librarian. I could have been a very happy librarian, I think, but I, you know, just in that very cliched way, I had the marks to choose law or medicine. I didn't think I really liked science, so I chose law. I stopped thinking, I guess I'd say, about what I wanted to do or what I could do and just kind of focused on those external validation mechanisms like getting high grades or reaching a certain level that would support access to university. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's not unusual for teens to kind of not know because it's really hard to work out what career when you've got no exposure to it. And then what I'm hearing from you, though, is there was also that kind of, yeah, the confidence thing of not wanting to call out any specific potential. I think it's like you just don't want to take risks. That's what I would call it. So, you know, you studied English lit and law at uni and also, you know, French and I think philosophy and thought you'd become a lawyer. So how did you end up getting involved in technology? Basically by complete accident. So I thought I would be a corporate lawyer, essentially, because finishing law school, that's what everybody aspired to be. And throughout my time at university, I worked for one of Australia's, what you'd call top tier or magic circle firms. And I was really well liked. I was good at my job. And I just thought, this is what I'm going to do because that was the career path. I applied for a clerkship at the firm I was working at, got the interview, and then just bombed the interview entirely to the point where they said to me afterwards, you just couldn't tell us anything about what you wanted to do within the firm or where you wanted to be in five years. But we have all of these students lining up desperate to work for us who could say which area they wanted to work in. Uh, where they saw themselves in five years as a lawyer and you just didn't do that for us. And that kind of was possibly one of the most helpful things they could have said because it really kind of hit home that actually I just don't want to do this. And so I moved to Canberra following at the time my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and one of the first jobs I happened to get was running this very small technology policy and law nonprofit called the Australian Digital Alliance. I just took the next available job and it just happened to be one that I loved and had a lot of opportunities within and was supported by an amazing board. So it just opened up many more doors than probably doing clerkships would have at the time. So it was an accident, essentially. Didn't have any other choice. <laughs> Classic. And so there you are. I mean, that's quite an amazing step, isn't it, to go from uni to, albeit it might have been a small not-for-profit, but nonetheless, you're you're running it. Was there a time in that role, kind of like an aha moment where you thought, wow, this technology stuff is really cool? So what I have realised I'm motivated by and possibly was my aha moment in the job was like, I really like new complex 
questions where it feels like you can bring some imagination to trying to figure your way through a problem. We're not dealing with, you know, in legal terms, 200 years of precedent that establish how you're going to approach a problem where the way forward is unclear. You can draw on ideas and tools from a variety of disciplines to help you work through it. The Australian Digital Alliance was really focused on intellectual property law and trade law affecting new technologies. And so it wasn't so much like, wow, I really love copyright law, for example, but more I liked that I was working in a space where we actually didn't have the answers. And it felt very much like we were pushing against what was possible at the time and trying to alter the path technologies would take in the future. And from that role, I think you were sort of kind of headhunted or certainly moved to Europe, starting in the Hague, ironically working with the International Federation of Library Associations. What irony is that, given your high school days? And then you found yourself in London. And I think you've described that somewhere as being the job for you. Tell us about what that role was. So this is the Open Data Institute that I joined, which was a non-profit established by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web, and Sir Nigel Shadbolt, who is a very well-regarded expert in artificial intelligence. I started there in a policy role because that had been my background, but the Open Data Institute was very much this hybrid, exciting institute where it did a mix of software development, tools development, policy work, training, art. It had just a very blended, exciting program of work. And I worked with some of the best people that I've ever worked with. And this was within a period within London and the UK where there was a lot of momentum and passion to think carefully and responsibly about how we use technology. So it was kind of the government digital service heyday. There was lots of amazing people working in government technology design. It just was a very vibrant community to be a part of. I feel like it really set me up with a number of skills and ways of thinking about technology that I've used every day since. It sounds like a a really amazing experience and at a time that was just so exciting. I'm curious because you moved overseas fairly early in your career and you know many of our listeners either have worked overseas, want to work overseas or actually are currently working outside of their native country. How did you go about building networks to facilitate say the move when when you're not actually in the country? This is a Really interesting question because actually, for example, in that move from The Hague to London, I changed communities entirely, like in a way that was quite shocking. So the communities that I worked in, so when I worked in The Hague with IFLA, the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions, most of my work was international. But the community is very much internet governance, international policy, international intellectual property law. So I had great relationships, great networks, but, you know, you just said you moved when you were quite young. And I think my time at IFLA was actually really hard for me because I think I was... I must have been about 24 
And taking on what was a relatively senior role with a lot of responsibility, moving internationally, I'm petite, I'm blonde, I'm a woman, and I just encountered a lot of badness. You know, like it is very hard to be a petite, young-looking woman in a senior role as in a lot of the times people would just reject that I should even be there. So after that experience, actually the move to London was, I just need a break from this. And I looked at the ODI job and it looked like it was similar enough to the job that I was doing, but I didn't know anyone in the Institute. I didn't know anyone in that London community. It was really just a, I'm going to go for it. And I just happened to get it. I took less pay. I was like, I'll just you know, I just need the break. And it wasn't until I arrived in London that I realised that there was no overlap between communities. How did you practically rebuild your network? Because, you know, that's something that that many people struggle with is actually how to actually even go about that. I don't know. I've always been very just get stuck in and do things and would kind of end up accidentally organising a lot of cross-organisational initiatives. And so in London, I was very acutely aware of the fact that nobody knew who I was. I couldn't really rely on any of my past experience or successes in this context because they just weren't even relevant in the world I was operating in. But I have always just been very good at bringing coalitions of people together and seeking out feedback from different kinds of people. And I just kind of grew a network of people whose opinions I still really value and who valued mine. Yeah, you've taken the word networking out of networking, basically. Basically, yeah. So then you decided to come back to Australia and you consulted for a while And then a year ago, you moved to the 3A Institute, which is part of the Australian National University based in Canberra. Can you explain a little bit about the Institute for our listeners? Sure. So the Institute was established by distinguished professor Genevieve Bell. She was at Intel in Silicon Valley for 20 odd years. She has a PhD in anthropology from Stanford. She's just kind of a very intelligent, charismatic, thinking five years ahead technology leader. The Institute is set up essentially to try and figure out what a new kind of engineering would be for complex learning systems. And when we say new kind of engineering approach, that's quite a provocative thing to say because it really infers that the way that we design computational systems right now doesn't work or isn't working sufficiently for some of the problems that we're encountering. It's very much trying to figure out how you could marry skills that are part of engineering disciplines. So our students spend time learning to program, they do some hardware, They look at computational systems design with the arts and humanities. So they also do critical readings of historic texts. They do speculative fiction. They do value-sensitive design. So it's trying to marry perhaps more reflective, historically aware, contextual approaches to the way that we design technology. So... It's a very diverse group of both staff and students. You know, we talk all the time, as in at a popular culture level, 
and at a kind of high level in the industry that we need more diverse teams building technologies. We need not only more diverse in terms of gender or ethnicity or socioeconomic background, but we also need not just computer scientists, but anthropologists and policymakers and artists to be part of those teams. And that is something that 3AI practices every day in its approach to teaching and research, but it also is hard. I think this is, you know, why a lot of people, we talk a lot about it, but we perhaps don't necessarily do it because it is very hard to be confronted with disciplinary backgrounds that are different to your own, who have a different way of seeing the world and a way of structuring approaches to problems. It sometimes makes for quite a confronting workplace where you realise that actually your sense of like what the problem is in this scenario is not a shared understanding across your team because you've all come from completely different backgrounds with completely different pedagogical approaches and senses of what is valuable. So it's both very rewarding, but it can also be like really tough. You really have to reach out to each other a lot more than you would if you were all computer scientists who have learnt the same way. And what do you mean by reach out? Because I think there's probably a lot of people listening who even with some mild diversity in their workplaces find challenges. What's the secret to sort of successfully navigating that? There are a few things. One is having a basic level of respect for the expertise and experience your co-workers come from. Like you need a foundational level of respect and trust for you to have those difficult conversations across boundaries. Then it allows you to have conversations where you say things like, I don't understand what you're talking about, or I see this completely differently, or the language that you're using doesn't make any sense to me from my disciplinary background. It allows you to kind of admit things like not understanding or being frustrated by or disagreeing with that approach because you have a level of respect for each other. I think that respect kind of helps create that sense of psychological safety when you're with your workmates. So, you know, that makes complete sense. I'm going to put you on the spot now because you've got these amazing teams of very diverse people looking, as you said earlier, sort of about five years down the track at least about where technology is going. What will we be doing in 2025 differently or what will we be experiencing differently? Right now, the situation we're in, which is a global pandemic on top of already a very kind of tumultuous year, climate change, political instability, I feel like we could see two extremes in 2025. I mean, on the one hand, because so much is uncertain, we can see real sudden changes occurring with technologies that we've agitated for for years. So on one side, suddenly we all rely on certain platforms in much, much more visceral ways than we've relied on them before. So, you know, Zoom has become not just the video conferencing tool, but the way that I sing happy birthday to my parents or the way that we participate in town hall meetings for local councils. So the infrastructure that we use, I think some of it will stay. Like there have been some aspects of this pandemic that I think make it very hard to go back to kind of non-remote working. I think things like remote conferences, virtual drop-ins, 
there are certain practices that we will see embedded by 2025. On the other side, what I think we're also seeing an acceleration of is this realisation that these platforms like Zoom, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram are really mediating our lives in ways that we are not comfortable with or didn't expect or have too much power. I know that concerns like the proliferation of hate speech on social media platforms have been concerns for years, our personal privacy, like what is happening with our data. And I can actually see already just in the last six months, you know, some platforms starting to change their behavior in ways they've been reluctant to for, you know, the last 15 years. So, you know, Twitter starting to actively annotate and remove misleading speech associated with political elections. So I think that is accelerating at the same time, which is exciting and hopeful to me, which makes me wonder if by 2025, you know, we could see a radically different set of responsibilities for technology providers and perhaps radically different legislation for technology providers. That, that excites me. And I'm curious, with all your kind of expertise in data, you know, what are you doing personally? Have you stopped your use of any particular social media, for example, or have you changed how you're using any of them? So I have noticed, and I don't know if it's my expertise or maybe my age, I don't know. You know, I'm conscious that I grew up with a variety of social media platforms. So I stopped using Facebook two years ago, mainly on stubbornness because I could see that their login authentication was trying to get me to install the app on my phone and I just refused to. So I stopped using Facebook, you know, because I knew all of the connotations of that. I rarely use Instagram anymore, rarely use LinkedIn. There's certain practices that I cultivate just simply, you know, like I use a password manager, I use incognito windows, there's kind of little things like that that I do. I also just perhaps am at a point in my life where I don't feel like I need to add things to the digital environment. So I just participate less. I think that's really interesting because I think more and more people are going down that track. So Ellen, I want to move now to your writing. You wrote a really powerful piece in the Griffith Review called Computer Says No. Can you explain the context for our listeners? In 2018, we had like this set of really big uh, media stories that really hammered home just how unequally weighted our approach to the achievements of women and the mistakes made by women were in contrast with men, as in this was the year that we had Christine Blasey Ford's testimony in the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. We also had, and I can't remember her name, the Australian journalist who alleged sexual harassment by, I think it was an opposition MP, and yet became the focus of the story herself. It was the Me Too movement, and yet it really made clear to me, and I think a lot of women, that no matter how much you try and play the role that you're told your whole life that you should play. Like, don't complain. Keep your head down. Be really good at your work. Just how much that was, you know, essentially bullshit. And, and I have very much done that. As in, I have always just been like, I'll just be really, really good at my job. And I won't 
agitate. I won't talk about any of the bad things that happen. And I just kind of, it dawned on me that this is just a fact of my life and I can choose to talk about it or not. So I wrote in that essay about all of the little micro things that I'd observed. And I guess, particularly in the context of, you know, AI ethics and governance. What have been the ramifications, if any, from writing that article? It's funny. Ironically, I'd say there have been very few ramifications and possibly that's made me more willing to speak up than before because I think I felt much more scrutinised than perhaps I was. Now I've kind of realised, oh, some people are just genuinely, even if they are actually listening to me, even if they are listening to this podcast, they actually may not even hear what I'm saying because they will hear something that is not necessarily what is coming out of my mouth. There are some things that I cannot change and will not win, so I'll just say whatever I want. So, Ellen, you wrote a book, Made by Humans, The AI Condition. What was the whole experience of writing and publicising the book like? It's interesting. I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine, Johan, here at the Institute yesterday about how I am motivated to do things. And it's usually only if I feel like I owe it to somebody else or there is a deadline that's being imposed by somebody else. So with Made by Humans, I was actually just incredibly fortunate that Louise Adler, who at the time was the director of Melbourne University Publishing, heard me on the ABC talking about a lot of AI and ethics and governance issues and just reached out and said, would you like to write a book? And so I agreed and then I had a deadline and then I had people to disappoint. So I really just kind of sat down and did it. I think I had 12 months total to write it, but a lot of it was kind of just thinking and researching and figuring out what I wanted to say. And then I wrote the bulk of it between kind of November and the beginning of February over 2017, 2018, it must have been. And that was actually a really personally gratifying thing to do to realise that I could sit down and write something and that some of the feedback suggests it wasn't half bad. You know, it's won a few awards, it's been shortlisted for some things and I hear people recommend it and include it in their top 10 lists in precisely the ways that I intended, like to be a smart book but for a broad audience And if you had to summarise in like two or three sentences, what's the book about? You know, what are the key takeaways that you wanted people, and I assume lay people, to take away? So basically it was to stop people talking about computers and algorithms as though they were separate and distinct from humans and instead get us all to focus on humans. These systems do not come out of nowhere. We design them. We are the data they learn from and we decide what to do with them. So it's separated into three parts, data, design and kind of governance or oversight. And it's really just hammering home the point that we're not talking about forces that we cannot control. We created it. We have the power to decide what we do with these systems that are in our lives. That is a really timely message, so much so, even more so today than I think in 2018. Talking about we have the power over the systems, what about you looking ahead with your life? You know, What do you see in the next few years ahead for Ellen Broad? I've never thought about precisely where I want to be in five years. I think there are things that I really enjoy about 3AI. I'm really enjoying being able to deepen my expertise in kind of 
history and philosophy and anthropology and computer science. I'm just kind of doing it because I enjoy it and it feels like an inspiring place to be. In five years' time, I hope that I am just still moving forward and I don't know exactly what that means. I feel as though the thing that I've always been very afraid of is that whatever I've just done will be the kind of most interesting thing I do. So I remember after writing the book, having conversations with friends saying, well, what do I do now? I've just written a book. I'd like to write another book. So I am thinking about what that next book might be. So how do you get things done? You've got a little one, you've got a family life and work. How do you sort of fit all this in? I don't know. I just think it's that when I have decided to do something, so whether it's I need to write a chapter for this paper or I need to prepare for this lecture or prepare this workshop material, I just will sit down and I will do it. And so I still feel like I say no to lots of things and that I drop things. But usually there's like a moment where I move from procrastination to, okay, I'm just going to have to set aside my Sunday afternoon to just smash this out. And I think that's just what I'll have to keep doing. I'm very aware of, you know, the fact that I'm in that period of my life now where, as you say, like I've got one child, we'll probably have more children. So it's going to be a pretty, not up and down emotionally, but like in terms of my productivity. And so I'm just trying to be kind to myself, but still fit in as much as I can. Being pregnant and then having a baby and recovering from that, you kind of aren't able to do everything that you want to do. Absolutely. Now, a moment ago, I asked you to look ahead. I'm going to ask you to look back now. And if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? My 25-year-old self, I would probably say, stop trying to please everyone. Like, I felt like my 20s were really hard. Like, I obviously, you would look at my career and say, wow, you did lots of things. But I felt very much like I spent a lot of time putting up with a lot of nonsense, but also just trying really, really hard to please everybody. So I think my advice to my 25-year-old self would be like, it is going to get better. Your 30s are going to be pretty great. Hopefully your 40s will be even better. You're actually still very young. (laughs) So I think I would just say, calm down. Don't worry so much. You will grow into yourself. Fantastic advice indeed. Well, Ellen, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time and your insights and thoughts and experiences today. If listeners wanted to find out more about you or the work of the 3A Institute, where should they go? They can go to the 3AI website or I have a website. They're probably the two easiest places to go to. Great. Well, we'll put those on the show notes as well. Um, So it's left for me now to simply say thank you so much, Ellen. It's been a delight to have you on the show and we really uh, have enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it too. quite fascinating, isn't it? Thinking about a bunch of engineers, artists, and people like Ellen all sitting around a table trying to figure out a whole new field of engineering in order to protect humanity from its own inventions decades down the track. It sure is. And I bet Ellen could never have imagined when she was studying to be a lawyer that this is what she'd be doing now with such a diverse group of people. I'm sure of that. 
It's also really interesting to see that Ellen hasn't needed a computer science degree or fluent coding skills to get started in her work on big data and AI. She's definitely developed some of those skills over time, but for all of us who aren't coders or engineers, it's really encouraging to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, Ellen has shared with us a whole host of helpful resources on AI for listeners. You'll find them on the show notes page. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for a mini episode next week, and then we'll be back with a fascinating guest from Colombia the week after. Stay well, be kind, and ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.